0: Welcome to Vino Week, Episode Four, brought to you by Vino One Hundred and One. Welcome to Vino Week. I'm Bill.
1: Hey, I'm Al, and uh, happy St. Patty's Day to everyone out there.
0: Yeah, it's right. We are recording on St. Patrick's Day. I do have green. I actually managed to wear green to work, so that was a good thing.
1: You got some green? Do you have any green wine in front of you? I
0: have no green wine or beer in front of me. <laughs>
1: When is the last time you had green beer? come on,
0: uh probably when I was in college there you go my undergrad quite a while ago yeah that's a uh, that's a rookie
1: maneuver right green beer green beer right
0: green well, green beer and then if I recall correctly when I went to elementary school and you didn't wear green, you got pinched
1: yeah, that's what happened that's and, what
0: happened, and now that's like now you get you could be sent to uh a suspended for sure yeah it could be it could not be the outcome you want <laughs> yeah how the, how the world changes huh that is what it is we'll be yeah. better than better than other things i guess so
1: I suppose.
0: I suppose we should talk about the world of wine and what's going on
1: yeah you know it just never uh, ceases to amaze me you know like a few days before we do this i think well god it doesn't seem like there's much going on but Sure enough, there really is a lot going on. It seems like
0: right, no doubt. You want,
1: you want to start with? Uh, I, I think we were talking about the Tyler Coleman uh, report on the real cost of a ten dollar bottle of wine. You want right. to start there?
0: Yeah, let's let so let's talk about that. Some somebody calculated the the cost to get um, a bottle of wine from a winery onto consumers into consumers' hands, right?
1: Yeah, this guy, Steve uh, Mel, Mel- Melkiski director of importers of U.S. Wine West. He calculated, um, a, a, I guess, a bottle of wine that would leave from Europe. And once it got over here, what it would ultimately end up costing a U.S. consumer. And uh, he says, you know, typically the bottle would be $2.40 uh a bottle leaving Europe and by the time it got into the consumer's hands over here, it'd be 10 bucks. And he talks about how that happens. Right. And, uh, I guess, you know, um, a lot of people are, I mean, maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar, but there's a three tier system that before it even gets to the three tier system, it's gotta go and you gotta pay duty and you gotta get it in a warehouse in the United States first. So, uh, that's about ten bucks a case right there, just to kind of like get it over here and then it goes to the importer and the importer he adds about 35%. Okay, that, markup, thirty five percent
0: typical markup thirty percent thirty thirty five percent markup
1: and then the importer from the importer it goes to a wholesaler and the wholesaler marks it up about forty percent so we're up to almost uh eighty bucks a case already. And then it hits the retailer, and the retailer can tack on anywhere from 35 to 50%, depending on what their markup is, right. which, which rounds it out to about $120 a case. Yeah. So, uh, you know, every hand it touches, everyone gets basically 30, 40, 50% somewhere along the line. And that's how you end up with uh, a $10 bottle that costs $2.40 <laughs> to make.
0: Uh, you know, the glass costs 2, two bucks. <laughs> it's you know, pretty okay. crazy, huh? It is. It so the is. thing
1: about the thing about that article that I thought was interesting is they didn't spend a whole bunch of time on it, but they never really talked about. I mean, talked about it a little bit, but it's the swing in currency rates that can just kill you. Yeah. When you're dealing with, um, you know, c- containers of wine. <laughs> so, yeah. Well. I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah you could be
1: you could be living large and feeling good and then you know who knows what could happen the next week man and you could lose your shorts
0: yeah no kidding uh you know hence the reason people make vast sums of money in currency arbitrage yeah yep you know and it's you know it's sort of the same thing you know I could see an imp- an importer just you know talking to a boat saying, just stay don't talk Yeah.
1: Don't 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 bring it in.
0: <laughs> don't yeah, leave it in the leave it in the in the warehouse in the in the receiving facility until the currency rates change and I to accept delivery. Because I assume that's probably when the transaction actually happens, but it's Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. So but I, that,
1: that, that cost that two dollar and forty cent cost, that's the bottle and everything. You know, yeah. leaving Europe. So that's yeah. pretty it's pretty amazing when you think about that, especially if you take it out. You You know, you could buy a pretty nice bottle. Say you buy a nice bottle of Riesling for twenty bucks. It's it's kind of scary to think that that bottle five bucks costs five bucks. Yep,
0: it's a five (laughs) buck bottle, and and most of it most of it is just people moving the wine around. You know, yeah. You know, putting it into a you know an importer. You know, so what does an importer get paid for? They get paid for processing all the paperwork, taking delivery internationally. You know, from international entity. And, you know, routing it to a distributor who, you know, doesn't really do anything other than store wine before it goes to a um, – you can correct me if I'm wrong there. But, I mean, distributors, that's basically all they do is move the product as close as they can to the retailer and then the, you know, retailer gets it.
1: Um, well, they move it but they also do a lot of the marketing. So, I mean, they have to, you know, they they have to send out sales crews to actually let them know what's in what's in their pipeline.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. So uh, it's interesting. It, it'll be interesting to see how long the. You know, there's a related article in Santa Rosa Press Democrat about a bill that's making its way through the California um, legislators uh, um, uh, around enabling <clears throat> spirits manufacturers to sort of sell on prem. So today, if you're a spirit manufacturer, right. you know, you can distill you your spirits, you can have a tasting room but you can't sell direct. And it's all what was interesting about that article it actually goes into a little bit of the history around how the three-tier system and or why this law exists that they can't sell. and all of it sort of happened after, a lot of these laws happened after prohibition in the US um, and you know coming out of prohibition there are a lot of people trying to effectively protect their market. Which is where a lot of these laws came from. My whole point, uh-huh. my whole point, winding what going down this path is. It'll be really interesting to see, especially with, um, you know, the technology that's out there today. How long sort of the three tier model holds? You know, a lot of there's a lot of money to fight that, but you know, wineries and and you know other manufacturers like you know, beer brewers and stir, spirit distillers are like. I don't really need the three tier system. I can just sell direct. Um, So it'll be really interesting to see how long those laws last.
1: Well, they've been lasting since prohibition, and I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. It's a huge, huge lobby. A whole bunch of money is at stake. And
0: uh, (laughs) well, yeah, like we talked last week, Southern Wine and Spirits, right? They're, you know, they're. uh, I have no idea in terms of their. Um what their annual revenue is, but I imagine it's pretty large um you know in the in the tens or hundreds of millions or I should say hundreds of millions if not close to a billion i don 't know for sure, but you know they got a lot of money and of course all the big brands that support them are gonna you know are gonna continue to support them so it'll you know, we- it'll, it'll be a battle but there're you know it's nice that their people can ship direct to consumers at least wineries can today.
1: When you look at some of the laws that are out there, I mean, we've got dry states, you know, things things don't change, you know, very frequently.
0: It's funny. I have talked to people who live in Utah, and it's funny how they, it's funny how people will get around the law. Yeah. Thirst, Thirst is a powerful thing.
1: It is indeed.
0: It is indeed.
1: So, um, uh, should we, uh, should we talk about, uh, Frescabaldi and, uh, you know,
0: Yeah. Why we're, <laughs> yeah why we're on law. So it seems <laughs> like Frescobaldi which is a, um, a producer in Italy in Tuscany. Yeah. Um, yes
1: well, they're kind of in a few places, but yeah, that's their, just their main, uh, lot in life. Yes.
0: Um, they turns out they have a prison project going where they're growing grapes and making wine and they've just expanded it. And it looks like this thing started in twenty twelve as a joint venture with the Italian prison department. So and they make they make three vintages and the average this is what killed me the most, the average bottle price is eighty four dollars on wine searcher.
1: That's some good wine I guess.
0: Well I you know did you I, did you
1: snap
0: I, I have not I've not had any of that, no. Um and I probably won't sell. And even one of the three tenors um <clears throat> looks like they're involved too. Um Andre uh, Bocelli is oh, yeah. involved in the project too. And they're expanding it. So I guess the message here is if you're gonna be a criminal, head to Italy. You can end <laughs> up on the the prison gang for wine. Um,
1: <clears throat> well, this this is a family that's been around for uh, a heck of a long time, and uh, you know they're doing a they're doing kind of a positive thing here. So, um, they have uh, some really really prominent labels that if you walk in a wine store, a small wine retailer, you've probably seen the, the nipizano which is um, a, a Chianti Rafina, um a really great bottle of wine. Uh, they also do the um, Castel Giacondo, um, a Brunello de Monticino. Uh, I believe they also do a Momoretto. they kind of high end stuff, but uh, not uh, super pricey, but very, very well made. Now, if I'm not mistaken, isn't this an island? Did you mention that it's an no, island? I
0: didn't. It, it's one of the la- I think it's the last one in Italy, but it is a prison island.
1: Yeah, it's in the Ligurian Sea, you know. Yep. So it almost, almost conjures up a like, uh, you know, uh, what's our what's our island that we have out there? Alcatraz. Um, Alcatraz <laughs> it has this Alcatraz I mean, thing, it, it, or I'm it, thinking um, uh, Papillon or something. <laughs> <yeah, laughs> they on the island.
0: Well, I, I, you know, so it begs the question: like, do Italian prisoners get a wine ration? Man, it would not it would not be unheard of, right? I mean that it. it that that whole the approach to alcohol in Europe is just vastly different um as we've talked about on Vino 101 on our podcast you know um it it's it, it's part of the meal it's a component of the of the food right right so i you know it'd be very interesting to see if they're, they they it's an interesting question like whether or not they get you know wine as part of their um you know, as part of their, you know, meal at some but,
1: level. You know, Fresco they're not playing around. You know, they're putting like 100000 annually into this project. And its we're only talking about, um, there's only 70 prisoners on the island. Yeah. Only 20 of them work in the vineyard. So, I mean, come on, man. They're, they're really taking care of these guys. Right. And uh, they they actually are learning, you know, a skill that they could use when they get out. So, um, they're learning how to make wine and, you know, making wine is actually growing the grapes is probably the most important thing. So it's, um, uh, it's, uh, hats off to them.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah, absolutely. And a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, analogies that can be taken from that sort of life metaphors in terms of, you know, growing a product and making it good stuff.
1: Good stuff. It's a positive model. Okay. So let's move on to another area that's, uh, way, way far away from there, uh, <laughs> Let's talk Texas wine.
0: So, the uh, Wall Street Journal article.
1: Yeah, it's um, by uh, Anna
0: uh, Campoy. Yep. Um, in Terra County, Texas. So this is West Texas, right? Um, yeah,
1: it's close to, I, I guess New Mexico. Yeah, close to the New Mexico border. Right. Kind of up in the, up in the Panhandle region.
0: Yep, and it, and I like I don't know a hundred percent, but I imagine at least a growing season that has, um. So I've been that through that part of the world, and I would say a growing season that's probably pretty comparable to what you would find in the Central Valley.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that you know it's you know it's it's cotton country. Yep, it really is what it is. Yep. It's,
0: so it's hot. It could be dry, but they're planting. They're they're ripping, or I shouldn't say ripping out, but putting in vineyards instead of of uh, their cotton crop. Because it's less water and they can make more money.
1: Absolutely, that's the deal. I didn't know that Texas was the fifth largest wine producer. Did you know that?
0: I had no idea. I, had, <laughs> you know, it. You know, this is sort of another thing that, like, I think most people don't realize. Wine, I think, is made in every state. It in is the United States, um, and you don't hear about like you know we've had sparkling wine from the Upper Peninsula or uh, Michigan, the Loire Peninsula, right? It was good.
1: It's pretty darn good, man. I wanted to get some more of that. I just never got around to it. You so, know how you're like, I got to get some of that, and then you kind of you lose it on the radar. But that that's what happened. Well, that was Moby, wasn't it?
0: I think so. El yeah, Moby, that was. El Moby. Um And you know that it um, it's just interesting, but you know it's it uh, trying to uh, look through the article here. Uh, 1.8 million cases of wine from Texas
1: um, yeah now that's, that that's been compromised a little bit because one of the things that they do have there is they have I mean it gets colder than Hades I mean colder than not Hades it gets well, it gets really colder than the Arctic up there in the wintertime and they have a lot of frost so I believe one year they lost like I think it was last year they lost 40 percent of their crop grape crop to frost. And a couple years before that, they lost 90% of their crop. So, I mean, if it doesn't kill your vines or or kill all the shoots, then, I mean, I guess you're doing all right. But, man, what a risk to take, right?
0: Yeah. But, I mean, it's, you know, economically, you know, we're talking about one, an acre of wine can generate as much as 40 acres in revenue.
1: Yeah, so it's a no-brainer, really, when you think about it.
0: And even, I bet you if you talk to the, you know, if you talk to the um wine growers the you know the farmers they'll effectively tell you they'll take that risk six ways to Sunday
1: and it, and it's important to point out that the reason that there's so many plantings going on is that there's a shortage of grapes in Texas they're selling more wine than they can actually grow grapes and what's happening is um if you have
0: That's crazy. in order to
1: yeah in order to carry the Texas Appalachian on your on your bottle of wine 75% of the contents have to be harvested in the state. Well, a lot of people aren't able to meet that minimum, and they're importing their grape juice from California. And then they put stuff on it like um, they'll put like a, a Texas star on there or, or uh, a, a big uh, cowboy hat or something, and they'll label it uh, American appellation instead of Texas, and that's how they get away <laughs>
0: Classic Texas, that plays right into stereotype. Well, we can't put a Texas star in, so the American it's the next best thing. American. so uh, gotta love it. You gotta love it. That's innovation. That's good marketing. It's all good stuff.
1: Well, it makes it makes a lot of the people that are trying to do it. Uh, you know, this is Texas wine because
0: you know. I mean, you can see the ambiguity there. A little bit. <laughs> it's so, like, where's that wine from? All over the United States, grapes hey, are from all over. It's American wine, okay? American.
1: <laughs> all right. What you got? What is up next, Bill? What do you got?
0: Um, well, we can kind of keep talking about sort of growing grapes. So, the, um, in Tuscany, they've put a moratorium on on effectively new vineyards and even the buildings. Um, so you know, pretty. You know, it's pretty draconian where the government's coming in, kind of telling you that not only can you not plant, but you can't even build a building. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, a, that's, that's, Tus. it's Tuscany specific, and it looks like a, what I can tell from the structure, it looks sort of like the, you know, it's a regional council, probably equivalent to a county, some kind of county government, um... I don't know exactly what denotes a region over there, but um, they're putting territorial oversight in.
1: Now, what was it? where was that article? I forgot.
0: That's er- yeah, a wine searcher article by uh, Jeremy Parson.
1: Okay. Let me look that up real quick. Well, I, you know, it, it just strikes – we kind of – this is a, a familiar theme. We've been talking about this, how people <laughs> – in general, if it, if it's not the government, you know, that's uh, kind of sticking their nose in a farmers' business, it's people, and uh, you know, it, it just brings up that whole thing of monoculture. Yeah, because I remember w- w- when I was over there just recently. I mean, I saw it as I see it. I saw it as pretty diverse. You know, the the agricultural scene there was pretty diverse. There was I saw you know, there's olive trees everywhere,
0: right? But
1: uh, you know. It was broken up pretty well, I thought. But, you know, I don't live there. I don't know what it was like, say, 20 years ago. Maybe the landscape has changed so much that people do see that it needs to be. One thing about vineyards when you plant them is there's always uh, problems with soil erosion. And um, also, vineyards suck up a lot of water. Yeah, I was about to
0: say there's water needs. But you can, you know, you can, you know, with technology, which we, you know, we mentioned, I think, on one one of the first sort of news recaps that we've done you know, combining satellite data, you know, localized weather stations, you can really get efficient in terms of, and then, you know, measuring sort of the soil moisture itself with, you know, sensors. Like that's, you know, wine, growing grapes is a crop that you can kind of earn enough revenue to invest in those types of systems. Those systems are getting cheaper and cheaper. So I think that's going to be, you know, less and less of an issue unless the, You know, obviously, growing grapes for just bulk, you know, bulk juice, that's a different story than, you know, if you've got a winery where you're growing some type of premium grape and you can, you know, make a product that commands a reasonable price. Right. Um, But it's still, you know, there's still going to be, you know, as we've discussed before, this is just another example of sort of the people versus space um, and, you know, people versus resources conversation. That's not going to get any better.
1: No, it doesn't seem like it. And this this woman, uh, her name's Anna Marson. She's the superintendent of environmental protection. Uh, This is her quote. Extended areas planted to vines represent a great threat to the naturalistic value of the agricultural landscape. Unquote. She seems pretty
0: uptight. (laughs) You know, everybody's got an agenda
1: i guess
0: everybody's got an agenda no (laughs) doubt about it
1: so uh yeah that's that's not well one of the nice things about um italy is that whatever laws they come up with laws are always meant to be massaged and i can attest to this by driving on the freeway um 130 kilometer uh, uh kilometers per hour on this, on the uh, Autostrada, it's merely a suggestion, my friend.
0: It's guidance. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> guidance. <laughs> so uh, I think they'll be okay over there. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, and I mean, ultimately, like, not having wine is, you know, I, you know, you get tarred feather or even burned at the stake for that kind of stuff. It could happen. It yeah, could ha- know, happen. It's, uh, you're only going to go so far.
1: Oh, okay. So, uh, so at, uh,
0: at, what? the other another article that caught my eye, which I thought was pretty interesting, is um, the Wall Street Journal um, did an article about sulfides um, and how you know there's you know you're getting headache from your wine because of the sulfides. Well, it turns out that's actually false. And most many of the products that we consume, dried fruit was called out in this article have. M- Way more sulfides in them than um, than wine does, and as an example, they say a glass of wine contains roughly 10 milligrams of sulfides, and two ounces of dried apricots can contain 112 milligrams.
1: Hey, come on, it's only 11 Sulfide. times as much. What's yeah. the big deal? Yeah.
0: Why are we all bent out of shape about this? And then, what's even better is they go on to debunk the whole like physiological. Um, uh, you know, reason that sulfides actually don't, don't contain or don't cause headaches. It's probably due to the fact you didn't eat before you drank, those kind of things. And then like, you wouldn't want wine that did not have sulfides in them. It would. Be, well, and,
1: and also, and it's interesting that a lot of these things, I mean, they have it on the wine label. It this contains, contains sulfides, but it's not anywhere on your bag of dried fruit. Right, And it's it's not in your, uh, you know, your little, uh, what is that little thing, that little limp thing that you have in your fridge, your fresh squeezed lemon that's in a plastic. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> it's, yeah,
0: it's like it's, loaded, loaded with them.
1: That's sulfide too. You
0: know? Yeah. I mean. And the sulfide thing, I mean, to be clear, they also mentioned this in the article. We have the illustrious late Senator Strom Thurmond to thank for this. He's the guy that's basically responsible for the yeah. sulfide Um. La- uh, the the word sulfides contains sulfides on the back of the wine bottle. He was a huge, huge um, anti-alcohol um, proponent, and you know, so that all that all came from the war on drugs and whatnot. Eighty eight, the article says.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was uh, just 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 say no.
0: It was part of the eighty eight Anti Drug Abuse Act all on the war on drugs, on the multi-billion dollar war on drugs that's been super effective here in the United States.
1: Yeah, it's working pretty well right now, it's, isn't it? Especially up in states like Colorado. and
0: Exactly. Has <laughs> they're, they're raking in millions of dollars in tax revenue.
1: Hey, you know, the big thing that they're having a problem with up there, this is an aside, um, these these places that offer uh, medical marijuana or um, recreational marijuana they can't get loans to expand their business which i really don't think they need those anyway but they can't bank they can't legally bank because all the banks are afraid to take their money as deposits thinking that it'll be confiscated when or if the law changes so they have these huge safes And in their operations, then they're they're basically cash only, you know, businesses. Yeah,
0: and we're gonna and we'll soon hear about all the crime that's that's around that from, you know, somebody trying to knock off the business that's got you know a million dollars in cash laying around because they can't turn it into a bank, and the bank's fear is not unreasonable. It is still, you know, as an (laughs) aside, it's a Schedule One narcotic. It's, you know, it's like running around with Oxycontin illegally. It's not a good thing. So, and, and so to continue on this sort of crime theme that we started right here, there's a little drama in Napa this week.
1: Oh, man. It's, it's much more serious than Falcon Crest, that's for sure.
0: It's, it's like um, – and I, I like the – so I saw the article in the Press Democrat, but the wine searcher covered it as, as well. And their headlines, on, it, it, it is an eye-catcher because it says, Napa winery owner executes investor.
1: That's yeah. Well, that's what you call a stinger. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that'll it's... that'll get you to read it.
0: So what what happened?
1: Well, um, what happened was uh, we've got two business partners. Um, it was basically a legal battle between uh, Robert Dahl, who owns uh, Dahl Vineyards, which is in Yalpville, and uh, Lexington Street Investments, which uh, one of the managing members was um, uh, Iman uh, I hope Hopefully, I said his name correctly. I,
0: you did better than I would have done. <laughs> I would have called him Twafilis Twof, or something.
1: So um, done. These guys have been battling for a couple of years, and apparently, um, Imad's uh, his managing uh, partnership lent uh, a substantial sum of money to this uh, Robert Dahl, and in return for that. Dahl um, didn't pay him back, essentially, and uh, they ended up in court, um, and he was sued. Uh, There's a long history of this going back uh, over about six or eight months, so this has really been brewing, and what they were having was they were having a, uh, I guess they were trying to resolve it, and they were there at the winery in Youngville, and they were having a conference call with their attorneys. One of the attorneys asked for a break. They said no big deal. Okay, we'll we'll call you back in a few. And uh, minutes later, uh, the guy uh, Ahmad is calling uh, on his phone. He's calling nine one one and saying, "Hey, um, I've just been shot, and this guy's chasing me and he's trying to kill me." Yeah, and actually, he's running through the vineyard. And I guess the guy, um, this doll guy character, is in his SUV. And he's chasing him, you know, through the vineyard, shooting at him out the window. I mean, it's like something out of a movie. And uh, eventually, uh, the Yonville Fire and Rescue are there, and uh, uh, they've got got the sheriff out there, and the guy makes it to the side road on um, Yonville Road, which is, uh, coincidentally, it's right along the freeway there, um, Highway 29. 29. And the police are coming up, and uh, the guy fell down. I don't know if he fell down because he was, you know, obviously he'd been injured, but he fell down. And um, this doll guy caught up to him and executed him right there on the spot, shot him in the head, hopped in his uh, SUV and took off down the highway and uh, ended up uh, running through a gate, uh, somebody's uh, locked gate, and, uh, you know, uh, crashed into the woods out there, and they found him. Eventually, he... He took his own life yeah. in, in the SUV.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's not a, terrib- a terribly sad story. Horrible. Horrible. Um,
0: over you know I mean over you know all things considered, but you know it was a million a million two, which you know yeah not it, much it's, it's not nothing, it's not anything to sneeze at but I mean honestly in, in California I mean his land was probably worth more than that, um, alone. I mean, if he's got vineyards in Napa, they're, you know, I can't imagine what an acre of prime Napa, you know, wine, um, you know, wine growing land goes for, but it's, you know, it's gotta be pretty pricey. So, um, but this guy was, I mean, this guy was, you know, was involved in a lot of, a lot of ventures from, you know, winemaking to beer brewing and
1: he had a he had a what do they say a storied past I think that's probably the best way to put it but he was really looking like he was going to get the hammer from uh, the court system uh coming up in April because they were they were due to go back in the court and um apparently um you know by all accounts he he had exhibited some kind of delusional behavior and uh he was he was uh, a handful yeah and uh being a little bit irrational so uh, I guess that 's what happens, but boy, what a terrible, terrible story,
0: yeah, just it just uh it's unbelievable right just a, a, as the cliche goes, life is stranger than fiction, a reality yes. is stranger than fiction um well that I think that's it we um there's a tasting coming up, we want to talk about the roan Ranger tasting, which I think's the twenty eighth of March.
1: Uh, it's the twenty seventh and the twenty eighth because they're having a big, huge. Uh, I think they're having a, like a some type of uh, dinner. Let me, are they? See if I can find. They're having a big dinner, which is kind of a big deal.
0: And it's in Richmond, California, which is sort of directly across from San Rafael, across the bay from yep. San Rafael, California. Um, not necessarily a place that you would that you would venture to guess that that uh, a tasting like that's happening.
1: Although you know Richmond at one time was kind of like uh you know i would say probably say back in like the 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 thirties forties, and fifties was you know a a very uh hobnob uh big industry type of city you know i mean I think Ford had a manufacturing plant there um there were that waterfront was just teeming with all these big businesses. And,
0: uh, and now a big oil and chemical terminal.
1: Yep, that. And uh, I, it still does have ties to cars because there's a lot of that's where all of the, uh, you know, when you pick up your Prius, um, that's where it came they, in.
0: They come in. <laughs>
1: it yep. came in. It came in the Port of Richmond. Gotcha. So. Uh, it looks like they've got a big a big dinner, and the dinner is uh, it's on Friday, and it's going to be at the San Francisco uh, the Golden Gate Club. Ah, there you go. Lots of lots of good wineries participating in that one: uh, Bonnie Doon, Campesino, uh, Kenneth Folk Vineyards, Coupe Ridge, uh, Tablets Creek, Tin Barn. That should be a pretty good time. Um, so what I, think- I
0: what I find interesting about this, if you talk to winemakers around here, they're all doing their sort of single varietal wine that they have to do to make money, but the winemaker's passion is for these Rhone blends. So there's a lot. That's my observation. That a, a lot of the creativity from the winemaker and their sort of passion is around is around these Rhone, you know these. Bl- these the Rhone blends and the wines that they make from them. I don't know if you notice that, but
1: well, you got a lot more freedom, and it's also something different and new. I mean, I mean, if you if you're a winemaker and you'd made Cabernet for the past 15, 20 years, sure, it's different every year, you know, because of the you know the the weather. I'd be bored but, after year too. I mean, you're forming. Yeah, yeah, your formula is going to be the same. So it, it's got to be fun to deal with other stuff, uh, yep. other rape varieties.
0: So if you're in the area, so, check that uh, out.
1: For sure, check that out. Uh, shoot, that's I, I guess it's a wrap, man. Yeah. I guess it's a wrap. Um, are we going to that Rone Rangers? Are we going to make I that? I think we are.
0: I think we're going to try to be there on Saturday. We should take lots of photos. We will,
1: and and maybe taste some wines too. What do you What do you say? I think that'll occur. <laughs> sounds good. All right, good. Hey, Bill, uh, thanks for the chat. I hope everybody enjoyed listening, and uh, we'll uh, be talking to you and uh, letting you know what's going on in the wine world next week. Cheers. Cheers.